This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. My main purpose in um, encouraging Ron to put together this series was really to stimulate critical discussion, to critical reflection, to inquire into what mindfulness is, which is at the heart of our practice, and how are we experiencing it, and how is it manifesting in our, our Western culture. This series addressed a number of very important questions. What is mindfulness, to start with? How does our view of mindfulness affect what we develop? How do secular applications of mindfulness relate to and interact with the mission of insight meditation communities? Really, the question we're asking is, is what kind of Buddhism are we establishing in the West? And how is that Buddhism engaging with other Western values and social systems, including Western religious beliefs, philosophical assumptions, capitalism, corporate culture? science, personal growth therapies, technologies. What is this interface between the West and Buddhism and how does mindfulness, sacred or secular, fit into it? As I was listening to the lectures that were given over this last month, I thought that indeed this series did accomplish the aim. There was a great deal of reflection on these important topics. And Buddhism does have a long tradition of conscious reflection to, to think about and to be concerned over what is presented as the Dhamma, to have concern over what is presented as the Buddhist teaching. Those of you that read the discourses of the Buddha will know that during the Buddha's life, the teachings were listened to very carefully. They were memorized. They were recited. And then they were spread by oral tradition. It was common practice for monastics to hear a teaching and then repeat it to others. To respond to a question that somebody asks and to respond as best that they can and then as they respond to hear what, what, what actually happened in that response and then to afterwards go to the Buddha or go to um, a senior monastic, a fellow in the, in, the, uh, in the holy life and repeat exactly what the question was, repeat exactly what the, the answer was that they'd given and ask, did they misrepresent the Dhamma? Or did they speak in a way that was aligned with the Dhamma? And so there was a, a tradition of teaching and checking, of sharing the Dhamma and then checking again with others. How accurate was that? Because we can all make mistakes. We can all skew things towards our personal preferences. And so this tradition of inviting correction is a very important one in the Buddhist tradition. 
Now, after the Buddha's death, there was a council that met quite soon after his death where they collected and agreed upon what the Buddha taught. What were the teachings? Can we gather these, um, these together, remember them as the word of the Buddha? This was the initial formation of what we have as the canon, as the canon of texts that trace back to the days of early Buddhism. Now, there were a couple of great councils that occurred in the 500 years after the Buddha's death that helped to organize and consolidate these teachings. And then, of course, a rich tradition of commentary developed to explain the many subtle points that were not quite so clear because sometimes the Buddha spoke one way to one person and then in a slightly different way to another person and then in a different way to another person. And so a commentary developed to help explain what different words mean, what different teachings meant, and how these different teachings related to each other that were given to different people. To this day, monastics recite and discuss the suttas together, not only to preserve the teachings, but to grapple with the meanings and the implications of these teachings. It is essential to understand these teachings and to see how our understanding is in accordance with the liberating purpose of the path. Because if we don't understand the purpose for which the teachings are given, the purpose for which the practices are practiced, then they won't accomplish the intended aim. But we're living in a very different time than the Buddha lived, with very different social structures. And as lay Buddhists, we don't have the same traditional forms where we come together for clarification, when we approach each other and recite texts together, where we um, try to, as a community, come to consensus about what these teachings mean. We don't have this same stable traditional structure for debate. And very few people in the West have actually both thoroughly studied the teachings of the Buddha and practiced them in depth. Our understanding is still largely superficial. We're basically beginners at this practice. I don't mean that as an insult to anyone in the West, but really, how many Westerners, even the most serious practitioners among us, could compare ourselves to some of the great masters in Thailand or Burma who've been in in robes for 70 years, practicing diligently day in and day out? How many Westerners dedicate the majority of their lives to the study and the practice of Dhamma? This really isn't isn't intended to denigrate the practice that we do do when I say that we're beginners. But it's just to recognize that for the most part, we are beginners. The Dhamma has not been in the West very long. We can very easily make mistakes and in our enthusiasm for mindfulness, we could be promoting misunderstandings that will have damaging consequences. 
In addition, we might worry when we see mindfulness becoming a buzzword in the media. The media and market interests and often non-practitioners who function in healthcare capacities, in academia, in corporations, as business consultants, or, or offering therapeutic practices. We might be concerned when the influence of people who are not dedicated to the Dhamma are starting to have a wider impact on the cultural understanding of what mindfulness is, a wider impact than the more accomplished practitioners. Who is defining what mindfulness meditation is? Who is defining how it works, what purpose it serves, and how it can be assessed as effective or ineffective? For many people who are deeply devoted to the liberating potential of meditation, these questions are of grave concern. During his life, when the Buddha was asked what would lead to the loss of the Dhamma teachings in the world, he said that when people are not interested in listening to the profound teachings on emptiness, that the Dhamma would decline and be lost in the world. In the Samyutta Nikaya, it says, when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, Deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness are being recited. They will not be eager to listen to them, nor lend an ear to them, nor apply their minds to be studied and mastered. But when those discourses that are mere poetry, composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, are recited, they will be eager to listen to those and lend their ear to them. They will apply their minds to understand them. They will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. In this way, bhikkhus, those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. When I began to teaching in 1996, I made a commitment, a personal commitment, to not shy away from the liberating teachings of the Dhamma, to try as best as I could to keep the context of the goal of awakening apparent and to check that the practices that I undertake and that the practices that I teach will lead to the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, and the ending of delusion. But I must admit that it is difficult. It's not that the Dhamma is difficult, but this focus on the ultimate goes against the grain, it goes against the stream of what the average person wants. Sometimes when I speak about advanced stages of the path or insights into not-self or awakening or the rich models for understanding the causes of suffering that Buddhism offers, I get a bit of flack for it. Some people love it, but some people are a bit agitated and disturbed and want something that is of immediate relevance to alleviate the immediate discomfort in their lives. I'm not overlooking the depth and the wisdom that actually is present in this room right now. Many of you are drawn to awakening. It's really a joy to see, actually. 
And it may be that many of you keep coming back again and again, not only because this may be the closest meditation group to your home, but maybe you sense that there is a depth in the teachings that are offered here. But overall, in my teaching experience, as I travel here and there, as I teach in various contexts, in various ways, and various places, I honestly am much asked much more often for teachings on the integration of mindfulness in everyday life than I am about anything that the Buddha taught. I'm asked very often for basic skills that will help people cope with the difficult challenges that we face in our lives. I get many more requests for improving concentration and relationships in the workplace or reducing personal anxiety than I do for ending the depths of craving that are the cause of suffering or for training on the practices of restraint or the liberating teachings of not-self. This won't be a surprise. We all want to feel better. We all want to be more effective in what we do. We all want to feel more alive to our lives. Fair enough. I do too. And meditation is actually a great support for living healthier, happier, more fulfilling and meaningful lives. So I don't want to diminish the importance of this motivation to grow, to learn, to improve ourselves, to take responsibility for our own happiness, and to compassionately share what we do discover in these wonderful practices in ways that will reduce the suffering of others in our communities. I'm quite confident, though, that most of you don't want to see mindfulness reduced to a mere mental fitness program. If you're attending Insight Meditation South Bay, I trust that you value the practices that we teach here of ethics, of mental development, and of wisdom, these three trainings that are the core of the Buddhist path. We all might look on with some horror, actually, at the prevalence of those aerobic um, yoga classes, fun as they might be, that are offered in fitness classes. You know, the ones with pounding music in the background and lines of very health-conscious people with, what, what, are, what, what do people say, yoga bodies? Wearing, um, wearing the, the newest yoga styles and yoga outfits. When you think about it and you think about what where yoga came from and you look at the way it's manifested here, it's shocking. I mean, this came out of a tradition that was oriented towards liberation and based in um, sensory restraint. And now we have all these very sensual, quite sexy outfits of doing all these little, these, these things. It's, It's just shocking. It's really a corruption of an ancient spiritual tradition. But I have to admit, yes, yoga is great for health. Yes, yoga is great, a great practice, great fun. I do it myself, and I started doing it regularly because my doctor prescribed it. 
because it helps my back. It's practical. I understand that. And yet my heart aches at the corruption of this ancient tradition that was so grounded and based in a whole different worldview than what we see manifesting as it's come to the West. It can be seen now as something of a fad for wealthy, beautiful people to do, to make us feel better, be more effective, be happier. Are we going to see a designer line of mindfulness clothing come out? Wouldn't that be scary? It might happen. It really might happen. After all, we do want to look good meditating, don't we? We do want to come dressed appropriate to the occasion. Now, change and adaptation in any um, uh, movement of, of teachings, techniques, practices, philosophies, religions is inevitable. I don't hear anyone saying that the Dhamma should be presented in 21st century America exactly the way that it was presented thousands of years ago in ancient India. But a critical discourse is an important component of a healthy Dhamma community. And we must consider, we must question, we must discuss what is being taught and how it's being presented and how it is changing. And ask, how are the ethical foundations being taught What skills are either emphasized or ignored? What is the aim and the result of the practice? And when we observe and reflect upon the effects and the implications in our lives and in our culture, so that we don't distort either the message of the Buddha or miss the whole point of Dhamma practice, which is the ending of the causes of suffering. Everyone is always free to apply what is most useful in our lives and to not practice what doesn't feel relevant to us. I hope that everybody who meditates experiences the personal benefits of mindfulness. But mindfulness in a Buddhist context is much more than what is usually described in secular settings or even our own introductory mindfulness classes. Mindfulness as a Buddhist practice goes beyond our individual interests of developing a settled and non-judgmental awareness of what's happening in the present moment. An insight meditation practice that's grounded in mindfulness must take the practitioner beyond acceptance of our personal patterns, beyond self-compassion and self-improvements to examine the root causes of suffering. In Buddhism, there has always been a refreshing lack of control over the individual. The history of Buddhism is wonderfully devoid of inquisitions, for example. We don't find lots of stories and history of oppression and the torture of heretics. It's a tradition that encourages this critical inquiry. It's a tradition that encourages questioning and continuing to challenge itself as a tradition to stay true to the potential of complete liberation the complete eradication of greed, of hate, and of delusion. This is the explicit purpose and the direction of our practice. 
As I listened to the talks that were previously offered in this series, I pulled out a number of themes and questions for our reflection tonight. Most of these questions were posed by the speakers themselves in the context of their talks during this series of mindfulness, sacred or secular. And I've clustered them into three sets based on the themes, the meaning of mindfulness as the first, the ethical basis in the presentation of mindfulness as the second set, and the third set is the effects of the secular movements of mindfulness on Buddhism in the West. And I'd like to first read some of these questions for your silent reflection, and then we'll get into various groups to explore them in more depth. And then after the, afterwards, we'll check in between each set. And then at the end, we have watermelon to enjoy as a brief social. So I'll just read the first set. And I invite you to just sit quietly and just notice your response to them. Don't think hard about these questions. Just tune in to your experience. What is your understanding and view of mindfulness? What is mindfulness? How do the different groups you've been exposed to think about mindfulness? What distinguishes mindfulness from attention? What are the special qualities of mindfulness in a Buddhist context? Are the mindfulness skills that are cultivated in secular contexts the same as those that are presented as right mindfulness in the Noble Eightfold Path of the Buddha Dhamma? The second set, what makes a practice ethical? How are ethics taught within the context of our insight meditation group or Buddhism?
How are ethics taught within the context of an MBSR curriculum or a therapeutic or corporate application of mindfulness? And the third set. What is the relationship between Buddhist groups, secular Buddhism, and secular applications of mindfulness? What compromises are we making for Buddhism to be compatible with modernity in the West? How are secular mindfulness interests affecting lay Buddhist communities? Is the deep potential for awakening diluted by emphasis on those particular results that can be measured in a research lab? Are secular applications of Buddhist practices inhibiting the potential for the depth of realization that originally drew so many of us to the Dhamma? So what I'd like to do is invite you to just um, turn to the people next to you and maybe just make groups of three to start with. And we're only going to look for the first five minutes at just, just talk amongst three of you about the first question, the first set, which is about mindfulness. What is mindfulness? How do different groups think about mindfulness? And I'll go around and pass out papers to remind you of the questions, but there'll only be about one paper per group. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.